Uh, D.A. Carson, he is a New Testament uh, scholar. Um, Jesus, uh, he likes the word sign uh, instead of miracle. So you do have uh, words like miracles, mighty works, uh, signs and wonders. Those show up in the other gospels. Actually, signs and wonders shows up one time in uh, John chapter 4. But but D.A. Carson points out that John prefers the word sign as opposed to miracle. Jesus' miracles, they're never simply what he, Carson calls, a naked display of power, uh, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but they are signs. They are significant. And notice uh, there, um, I don't know if that part of it made it onto uh, the, the thing, maybe it didn't, but even if you think about the word significant, the, the first part of that word is sign. They are significant, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. They are not just there for us to say, wow, Jesus, he knew how to have a party. He, you know, practiced up on his card tricks, on his sleight of hand, or even if, if you're not that cynical, wow, he just liked to show off his power. Uh, John wants us to see that these signs, these miracles, they, they point to something beyond the actual miracle themselves. They, they are signs pointing to a deeper reality. So fast forward for a second into John chapter 20. It's on the screen. This is one of the theme verses for the whole book of John. If you've ever studied John, you get to this at the end, and it's worth us uh, not bearing the lead, so to speak. So at the end, John, the apostle, who's the one writing, he makes this comment about what he's written. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, so the seven in particular that we'll, we'll look at, but these are written, and here's why John wrote these, so that you, and that includes us, let me just pause parenthetical editorial comment now from Paul O. Even us, 2,000 years later, as we look at what's written, these miracles that are signs that point beyond themselves, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That, that is the point of these miracles. But let's, let's try to keep that word sign as is the main one. John records seven, again, eight if we count the resurrection, and they're not there simply for us to marvel, although we do and we should, but they're written that we might believe. In, in, in the Bible, the word believe is, is basically the word trust. It can be translated that way. We could say, these are written so that you may trust that Jesus isn't just Jesus, but in particular, the Christ, the, the promised Messiah, anointed one, even the Son of God. And that by believing in Jesus through these signs, it might allow us to have life in his name. And that's not just a ticket to heaven one day. 
you know, keep, keeping it in your pocket so you're ready to go. It's life now. It's eternal life now. Life. The way we are meant to live. Life. Connected back to God. Rightly restored to God through Jesus, which is one of the reasons he came. He came to forgive us, to redeem us. Um, all these different truths that are part of us having life in his name. And so I hope you'll join us over the next several weeks. We, we, in our email, put out every Thursday or Friday a little blurb about the message, and we'll put in there the text so you can read ahead and think it through. But we want to see how these miracles, these signs, in fact, point beyond themselves to deeper realities, and that we might believe. And if we are already believers, my prayer is that we'll be strengthened in our trust and belief. And and if you are somewhere in process that that as you encounter Jesus with us over these next seven, eight weeks, you'll you'll come to believe as well. So that is uh, where we are going. If you haven't opened to John 2 yet, the passage that Jan read, I would invite you to do that now. John chapter 2. And uh, as you heard it read, some of you no doubt might be familiar as well with with this, this account, this this miracle, this sign of Jesus turning water into wine. Um, It's an unusual account. Um, Jump to verse 11. And again, I'll have this on the screen just for a second if you want to look up and see it. Again, at the very end of the account, this is what John the Apostle writes. This, that is water becoming wine, the first of Jesus' signs, uh, the apocryphal accounts of, you know, toddler Jesus running around making clay, things become animals, or, you know, if you've ever read any of that stuff, it's make-believe, those uh, accounts. Uh, This is the first thing Jesus uh, did as far as a sign, And, and John says he did this in Cana in Galilee, and in doing it, he he manifested his glory. This, this is another big theme in the Gospel of John, the glory of God. In John chapter 1, we don't have time to look at it. I, I, you know, This always happens to me. I decide we're going to look at these seven signs, and, and then studying this sign, I just start to want to, oh, you should really go back into chapter 1, and, and, and we can't, um, we won't, but I'll highlight things along the way. And in, in John 1, John says that Jesus came... Um, full of grace and truth. And and it says that his glory was beheld because he wasn't just a man. Again, I I mentioned in the announcement for Sunday Night Theology, we believe in one God, we are monotheistic, but in believing in one God, he exists and has eternally existed in three persons, not three gods, three persons, and personhood is different than, than, you know, the existence of God. And it's mysterious. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, came to earth some 2,000 years ago and took on flesh. So he was the God-man, and his glory was on display in those three some years. And his glory was most especially on display through what he would accomplish on the cross, but his glory was on display, his majesty, just the fullness of who God is. That's, That's the idea of glory. I remember years ago hearing of um, a rugby uh, team. You know rugby, it's that sport that's kind of like American football. Yeah. Well, anyway, some rugby team somewhere halfway around the world, I think in Australia, actually, um, on their rugby shirts, 
They have the, the motto, we play for glory. Yeah. Doesn't that just make you want to play football? Well, I mean, we, we get it, though, right? We hear that. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, a sports team, they, they play not just to win a game, not just to, to win, you know, their league, their season, but for glory, like the fullness of everything. So God's glory, the fullness of who he is and his attributes, that is, his, his nature, and, and right? Jesus came and... and Glory was on display. And so this first sign, somehow, turning water into wine? Really? That first sign manifested his glory. And then it says, his disciples believed in him, had trust, faith in him. And it's interesting to remember, as I said, this is early in Jesus' three years. In fact, there's probably only five of what we think of as like the 12 apostles, right? The, the disciple core. At this point, there's only five or so with him. Uh, in, in John 1, they're, they're named. So this is early on. In fact, if, if we were to now try to find, this story isn't recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but if we were to line it all up, and there's a great book called The Harmony of the Gospels. A.T. Robinson's been around for years. Wonderful tool. You can probably find it online. It seeks to harmonize Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so you could kind of chronologically follow. Well, this happens early. Okay, this is this is like right after uh, Jesus's his temptation in the wilderness and, and those things. This is like the very, very beginning of him going out as a first-century rabbi teacher, and so the first miracle sign that points beyond itself manifests his glory. So I want to just walk through this and kind of lingering in the background, we should be thinking, how does turning water into wine manifest glory? Andrew Wilson, he's a writer, and he he writes this. It's, It's interesting, kind of makes the point. The first sign that manifested his glory and caused his disciples to believe in him was quite literally a party piece. He went to a wedding and turned 150 gallons of water into fine wine. I mean, if you just think about it for a second, right? He, he didn't heal somebody for his first sign. He didn't walk on water. He didn't raise anyone. He, he didn't make a blind person see. He turned water into fine wine. Why would that display his glory? And, and really, you know, can, can we trust this? Uh, anyway, let, let me read one more quote. This is uh, Tim Keller writing, and he notes that Reynolds Price, who was a very prominent professor of English literature at Duke University for many years and a celebrated novelist, wrote an interesting book called The Three Gospels in which he translated and analyzed the Gospels of Mark and John and then wrote his own version of the life of Jesus. And speaking as a literature expert, he argues that the Gospel of John is not a work of fiction, but rather was written by the hand of a clear-minded, thoughtful eyewitness to the acts and mind of Jesus. And, And here's the point. One of the many reasons for his conclusion is this account of the first miracle. Price asks, why invent for the inaugural sign of Jesus' great career, a miraculous solution to a mere social oversight. 
no one would have made something like this up. Right? If, if you were going to make up a story of, of Jesus and his first great sign proving that he, he was transcendent and could do things, you're going to have him turn water into wine this, to help this wedding party save face? Right? You, you wouldn't think to make that up. Uh, and so I think that's worth us can, considering as we dive into this. But like one of my mentors used to say, what must God be like? I mean, and what must Jesus be like that he would do this? So let's dive in and, and look a little bit at this account. So John 2, and uh, we'll look uh, first off at verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So raise your hand if you've been to a wedding. Okay, most of you, probably, <laughs> okay, uh, have, have been to a wedding. And probably most of the weddings we've all attended are like on one day. And, and you know, it's interesting how weddings change. Even in, in my lifetime, uh, this summer, Kristen and I will celebrate our 30th anniversary. And the way weddings were done 30 years ago, are, it's different than, than now for sure. Um, but, but maybe nowadays, uh, a wedding on one day is, is quite an ordeal, right? It, it, if you are from around here, it might begin uh, up at some vineyard, you know, some beautiful setting, and, uh, and there will be a ceremony, and then maybe there will be a meal there, and then that will transfer into a long party with more food and drink and, and dancing. And um, I, I'm, I'm old enough to be one of those guys that is like, when are they going to cut the cake? When is... When are we going to get on with, with this, right? Okay. Because um, kind of, again, back in my day, you know, it was kind of got, got to it and, and so on. And the cake was kind of like, okay, this thing is finally almost over um, and so on. Uh, I know uh, my kids are thinking, oh, oh what's dad going to be like when it comes time for our wedding? Uh, we'll, well, we'll see. In Jesus' day, weddings were dramatically different. They weren't one day. Uh, weddings were, were long, a week long, and they were joyful occasions for all of the families, and it was a community event, so much more than it is nowadays, right? Nowadays, grooms and brides, they have to make their list, and they have to cut down people, and no, no we can't invite those friends of yours, and no, we only got this many seats, and the catering cost, you know. In first century the world, um, this was a community celebration. And so this is not far from Nazareth, where Jesus would have grown up, uh, and so all we can really do is infer some things. The, the mother of Jesus was there, so she must have been connected. And the fact that she's going to point out to him that they've run out of wine means maybe she was asked to help, but, you know, maybe everybody kind of did. Um, but Jesus was invited too. And because he's a, a rabbi and just sort of coming onto the scene, he's got some followers. They, they get invited as well. Again, we don't know the full extent of, of Mary's involvement, but again, obviously, um, there's some involvement because um, we read verse, verse 3, next verse, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they, they have no, no wine. So th this is, again, in its context, uh, it's important for us to, to feel the weight, like a, an embarrassment for this, this groom. It was the groom's responsibility and his family to provide. And if this is a big community event and now there's no wine, 
um, he's, he's going to be embarrassed. And in a, in a culture that valued so much more issues of shame and honor and dishonor and all that went into things than, than we do here, um, this was a big deal. And so, so Jesus, uh, Jesus' mom, simply states to Jesus, they, they have no wine. So why did she come to him? Again, she hadn't seen him doing, you know, little miracles, you know, around as a kid. But let's think of what we do know. We know that when she was pregnant, an angel visited her and told her, what's going on inside you is, is from the Holy Spirit and, 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 and this one is going to redeem, he's going to save. And, and, and Mary grasped as much as she could that truth um, about who he would be. And then as he grows up, we learn in Luke's account that at about 12, uh, they had gone to Jerusalem and Jesus stayed back. And again, it wasn't kind of like our day where we can all pull out our phone and track everyone in our family. Oh yeah, this kid's over there, you know, and ping them and, you know, get everybody together, right? They, they traveled in families and so they, they were making their way home back to Galilee and they realized sometime later, Jesus isn't here. And so they have to go back and they find Jesus with, with the teachers and, and he makes the statement that he's about his father's business. But then the scriptures are silent on the life of Jesus. But, but we do know it says in Luke there that he, he learned obedience. He, he, was, he was a boy living at home, but he, but he hadn't manifested his glory yet. So all these years go by, and we also know that Joseph was a carpenter and Jesus became a carpenter, and we infer that at some point leading up to now in the life of Jesus, his, his earthly father dies. So at some point... Mary had to rely on her son, and she had other kids, but, but Jesus was the oldest, and she had come to rely on him if she needed help. A lot of moms in the room probably can relate to that, relying on their kids, their older kids, for help along the way. Again, we're inferring. We don't know exactly. Does she understand that maybe he could do something, or is she just needing his help? But Jesus responds, verse 4, and it's a weird response to our ears. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, if he were a younger kid, he might have got a smack for calling his mom woman. <laughs> but here's the thing. There's no, there's no like, well, the Greek word really means... You know, no, this is a, an expression of what one scholar calls polite distance. In fact, later in John, when Jesus is on the cross, he will say the same word to Mary when she's beholding her son dying. And John is, is there, he, he's, he calls her woman. And so what is, what is going on? It's, it's an expression of polite distance. Literally, uh, the phrase is something like, like this. Um, what do you and I have in common so far as the matter at hand is concerned? But it's not, again, it's not like Jesus is, you know, cold shoulder. Um, there's a, I like the phrase, polite distance to his question. 
And here's the heart of it. And Don Carson, in his amazing commentary, has a lengthy paragraph. I won't read the whole thing. Let Let me just read this part. She, like every other person, must come to him as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Neither she nor anyone else dare presume to approach him on an inside track. Whatever is happening, and if this is going to be the first sign where he manifests his glory, even though he's been a good son and his mom has relied on him, it's time now, as he goes out as this rabbi and calls people to follow him, there's a distancing. It's kinda, that had to have been hard for Mary. I know as a dad, as my kids have gotten older, it's hard that they don't need me. There's times, honestly, I, I, I look at the little kids at the playground, I think, man, I love those days. They needed me all the time, and, and they, they, you know, they, they couldn't do much, but now they can do a lot of things, and I have to let go, let them succeed, let them fail, let them say, Dad, I don't need help. No, thank you, Dad. That's, that's Mary's feeling the, the, this. But then Jesus doesn't just say, you know, woman, what does this have to do with me? Then, then the next phrase is important. My hour has not yet come. Now again, we're not going to trace it, but in John, that phrase hour is a reference to his death. It's a reference to the crucifixion and what would be accomplished um, John 7 and 8, 12 and 13, chapter 17. So five or six specific references when that phrase is used. What kind of response is this? Woman, this this isn't about you and me right now. Uh, My hour. She's not asking him to die. She just needs help saving this groom from embarrassment. On the surface, that's what it is. She wants Jesus to help fix the problem so that the groom's not embarrassed. But, but again, this is where we now need to start to behold the glory of what is, is going on. And, and again, there's just a few different things to kind of tease through. Wine was like it is today, a beverage of celebration and a beverage used in, in parties. And uh, especially in the Old Testament, passages like Isaiah 25, 6, that speak of the end of the age when, when the Messiah comes and, and the new earth and all of that comes. Isaiah 25, 6 says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Or Jeremiah 31.12, they shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. And there's plenty other references in Hosea and Joel and Amos. So when the Messiah comes in his fullness at the end of the age, wine is, is going to be part of things because we're going to celebrate and enjoy, enjoy an amazing meal. And here Jesus is at a wedding. And at this wedding, wine was important. So maybe Jesus is aware that 
one day when his time on earth is done and he's accomplished what he came to earth to do and then at the end, yeah, there will be wine then, but that time is not yet. So that, that might be part of what's at play, but we'll, we'll see a few other things. Uh, verse 5 continues. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So she's not put off, or at least if she is, she holds it together. And so she simply you know, says, whatever he says to do, you, you do. And now John begins to tell us some more about the context. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. And each held 20 or 30 gallons of water. And that's where we we get this idea that this is hundreds of gallons of wine eventually. Jars for purification, water that was used in the regular rhythms of ritual cleansing, stuff that was part of the old covenant, part of the old way. And and, and what is going to happen? Jesus is going to manifest his glory. He's going to preach. He's going to usher in the kingdom. And if you were with us a couple of years ago, we went through the book of Hebrews, or maybe it was last year only. Uh, we, we saw that Jesus is the once for all sacrifice that does away with all of this cleansing, all of this ritualistic using of water and things to outwardly symbolize a cleansing. And so, so maybe that's another thing going on here. Jesus is at a wedding and he knows that wine one day is going to be part of his return. And he knows that his life is going to be the life that does the real cleansing work and no longer is water needed as an outward symbol. So verse seven, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So there's a well, most likely there. And they filled them up to the brim. So there, right, it's right at the line. It's, it's spilling over. Verse eight, he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from. So he didn't know what had just happened, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast calls the bridegroom, who's maybe aware, maybe not aware of what's going on. Maybe Mary and the others are trying to not let him know of this embarrassment that that could be happening. But at any rate, the bridegroom and his family who are responsible get brought over. Verse 10, they said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely and the effects of the good wine are kicking in, (laughs) that's parenthetical, then the poor wine, then the cheap stuff comes out, the two-buck chuck the wine in the box. That comes later. But you, you've kept the good wine till now. So Jesus is there and he's asked to help this family. And, and he does. And we'll come to that in a second. He, he helps this groom save face. But but is he aware of the, these things that are at play, that, that he's 
needing to make wine, this, this, this beverage that is going to be part of life with him one day. Is he thinking too that in just a few years he'll have a meal with his closest followers and he'll say, this, this wine that we're drinking, it represents the blood of the new covenant that the, I'm going to shed in a moment. And so when you drink this wine, you're going to remember who I am and what I've done, and you're going to proclaim my death. Is he, is he cognizant of, of some of that? The bridegroom, you know, plays a central role. We're, we're so used to brides being the, the focal point of weddings, right? Uh, someone that I know is getting married later this year, and I, uh, this couple, and so I said to uh, the groom-to-be, uh, hey, so how's wedding planning going? And typical groom-to-be, oh, yeah, yeah, she's da 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 and he just rattled off all the things that she's doing, okay, kind of a thing. Uh, and I, I confess, too, even when we got married 30 years ago, Kristen did the bulk of it, and, and I tried to help and be a good helper, uh, but, but man, right, the, it's about the bride, the bride, the bride, but, but in this day, it was the groom. I mean, the bride matters too, don't get me wrong, but the groom, the groom had the responsibility. And, and, and that, that picture, that metaphor um, that my kids, my, my boys especially hated when they were little, that we, God's people, the church, are the bride of Christ and he is the bridegroom, maybe that's at play too. And in fact, in John, Jesus is going to come flat out and declare himself to be the bridegroom of God's people. That, that was a statement God used of himself in the Old Testament. God is the bridegroom. His people, Israel, are the bride. And Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God, is going to declare himself to be the groom. And so maybe all that is at play as well. And in fact, uh, you know, this, this head waiter, this, this head uh, master of the feast, of the earthly feast there is brought, but Maybe Jesus is the real headmaster. He's the one calling the shots. He's the one at play in all of this. So we have these these deeper things going on so that John then can say to us, and I'll put it back on the screen, verse 11, this then, the first of his signs, turning water to wine, something that seems like it's just about, you know, helping a groom not be embarrassed, which it was. No, no, it it was about his glory. He did in Cana, and it it manifested his glory. He showed that he, in fact, was going to shed his blood, and that was going to be represented through wine that we would drink now and remember, and one day we'll drink wine. And so he makes this perfect great wine as a foretaste of the wine that he would have one day. Um, He is, in fact, the, the groom of God's people, and, and, uh, and maybe that's at play in all of this. But on the surface, he, he helps this groom save face. You see, he has the, the power to turn water to wine. He does. Because he's been obedient to his Father in heaven when it was time to, to do this, he is the ultimate purifier, right? We talked about those jars of purifying water. They, again, are only a symbol of the purifying work that would happen through him. He's the ultimate purifier, and he is the all-providing groom. He has the power to turn water to wine, and so in doing this, to manifest his glory. 
He also has the power to change lives, and that's maybe where it starts to hit us. This isn't just meant to be a miracle that we go, wow, cool Jesus, I wish I knew how to do that, or whoa. No, his glory has been manifested in this account. He can change lives, and that's the point at the end of verse 11. His disciples, they would believe him. They would start to understand and have some ahas happening. One writer says, the point of this account is not that Jesus can meet needs, although he can and he does, but that's not the point. The point is of this account is not that he can meet needs, it's that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God here to do God's work, and we need to believe in him. We need to believe in him. But he meets needs too, and that application is there. He, he, even though it's this polite distance, he, he honors his earthly mother's request for help. He meets a need. He, he helps this groom save face in a culture that some writers note that, that he may have, uh, the groom may have been financially liable. Like if people got upset and left, you know, over this, they, they, is, there's some indications from that time that uh, the bride and her family could, you know, what we would call sue the groom for having a terrible wedding and, and terrible party. So Jesus does meet some needs. But, but again, that, that comes second. But here's what I want us to note um, as, we, as we conclude this morning. There's, there's a verse in, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. I was at a memorial service this week. Um, several of you were there as well. Um, a local godly man, in fact, the, the founder of Mount Gilead Bible Camp, um, he went home to be with the Lord just a couple of weeks ago. His name was Dwight Youngkite. And so at the memorial service for, for Dwight, we, we heard some stories of him and uh, his faith, his trust, and, and all of those things. And um, during the memorial sermon, uh, the pastor talked about this verse, Ephesians 3, verse 20. It's a prayer. Um, it's, a, it's a prayer worth memorizing from the Apostle Paul. Let me read it. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power work within us. And, and it goes on. But Paul has just been praying in context. And then he says, Now to him, the one we've been, I've been praying to, who is able, he can do it, and he can do far more abundantly than we're able to imagine. That, that idea of ask or think includes imagine. That's, that's Jesus, the one who we're called to worship and to, to see his glory in this account, but also to recognize he does meet needs. What's, what's going on in your life this week? Where, where do you need Jesus to show up? What's weighing on you? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's, it's financial. Maybe it's health. Or anything in the middle of all of that or outside of that. Where, where do you need the miraculous, glorious power of Jesus to show up? The God-man who saved a wedding from disaster by turning water to wine, he manifested his glory because it showed that this sign wasn't just about that, but about who he was. And he is able to do far more abundantly 
in your life and in my life, beyond what we could ask and we need to be asking and imagine. So I want to close with just a moment of silent prayer and just invite you to talk to God about that. Where do you need him to show up and do exceedingly abundantly in your life? Because he's able, and this sign is to help us believe in who he is, and he's still the same. He, he's able to do things. The hard part is, right, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says wait, but he, he wants us to ask. So I invite you just to close your eyes, talk to him quietly, and then we're going to sing uh, a song. You probably know it from the radio if you, if you listen to Christian radio, but it's just a confession, asking God to do it again, to, to show up again. And for some of you, that might be a first time. And I just would invite you. God says that we'll find him when we search for him and seek him with our whole heart. So maybe this is a call today for you to seek him. So you talk to him, and then we will we'll stand and sing the song to conclude.